I want to thank uh, Dave and the team of song leaders, their work and their effort during the week pays off in a day like today where we're brought before God in such a great way. So thank you people for giving of yourselves. I also want to say quickly as you're turning to the passage in Titus, that, that song, uh, My Chains Fell Off, of course, taken from the famous song Amazing Grace, written by John Newton, who was a pastor, and um, he wrote the words. The tune itself is unknown uh, where it originated from. And, um, but if you know Newton and you know his early life, you might have a clue to where it comes from. He was a slave trader as a young man. He left home. And uh, he was, according to his own words, the worst of all uh, men, the vilest of the vile. It sounds a lot like Paul in his autobiography when he recounts his life of sexual sin, of uh, rebellion, of cheating and stealing. I mean, when you're willing to steal from men who are captains of ships that stole humans and are trafficking them to other parts of the world for gain, you're a brave man. People like that don't mind cutting your throat. And yet Newton uh, was the vilest of the vile, in his own words. And he was converted because he was afraid for his life. <laughs> he was, uh, he was uh, abandoned at one point and made his way back home. And he had, in a way, swore a pact with God that if God would save him from this earthly travail, he would do whatever it took to serve him the rest of his life. And he did that. He did it in the outskirts of London in a small church, and he was a pastor there. And I tell you that to tell you this. He impacted a man named William Wilberforce through his preaching, teaching, and writing who came to him regularly as a member of the House of Commons to discuss the need to end the African slave trade in the colonies of Britain. And Newton advised him strongly to fight the fight, to be active as a believer. And he recounted his stories of his life as a slave trader to prove the point that this was an immoral act that was going on and it must be stopped. Matter of fact, at one point he told Wilberforce, if the church has no voice against this immorality, it has no voice. That's a strong statement. I mean, just powerful. Wilberforce fought his whole life to see that slave trade ended. And near the end of his life and near the end of Newton's life, they brought to vote the, the act which banned the, owning, the selling of slaves in the colonies. And Newton was there to see full circle God's amazing grace. He wrote that song, Amazing Grace, as a pastor. And I told you that tune is unknown. But we know a lot about it. It's a spiritual. It's classified in the black spiritual category. And it's my contention and many others' contention that he learned the tune by captaining slave ships from Africa to England while those slaves hummed and sang spiritual songs from the bellies of those ships. 
And he wrote the tune, uh, he wrote the words to the tune intentionally to say, Amazing Grace is what helped me out of that. Amazing Grace is what kept them alive. And Amazing Grace is all you have in this life. It's Amazing Grace. It's a beautiful song. It stood the test of time. It's one of Newton's many hymns. He wrote over 400 hymns himself. And we don't sing most of them, but we sing that one. Because I believe God uses men who are wicked and defiled and sinners to do His work like Wilberforce, like Newton, and like the men who are the subject of our text today. For there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers, deceivers. That sounds like Newton's autobiography. Especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. So I've named this sermon, Shut Their Mouths. That's what Paul said. It's just that strong. I started to say, kids, close your ears. Shut up. But I was afraid that might be a bad word in your house, so I didn't. Shut their mouths is the biblical mandate from Paul towards these, el- these false teachers, these elders who've crept into the Cretan church and are upsetting whole families because they want shameful gain, filthy lucre, we might say. They are obsessed with money. God uses men like this. He saves them by His grace and then He uses them as great testimonies of His power. Paul himself was one of these men in some ways. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul tells us that he was the chief of all sinners. Paul was not a pretty church boy. He was not an altar kid. He was a murderer. He persecuted the church from Jerusalem throughout the area of Judea, Samaria. He persecuted and attempted to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And God uses men like that once He saves them by His grace and changes their lives. God uses ungodly men. That's not the point of this sermon. It's not that God, that that you're so ungodly sitting in this congregation that God can't use you. The point is that God will change you by His grace and you will not any longer act as if you are a lazy glutton or a cretin, but you will be conformed to the image of Christ. You see, the, the whole series is titled, If Not Programs, Then What? You may be wondering, what does that mean? If we don't do programs, what are we going to do? Paul says, get your doctrine right. That's verses 1 through 4. Paul says, once your doctrine's right, put godly leaders in charge. If we don't have programs, what are we going to spend our time doing, Carlton? We're going to get our doctrine right, and we're going to get godly men leading the church under the care of Christ, the administration of the great shepherd. And what are we going to do after that? 
We're going to find those who teach false teachings in our midst and shut their mouths because they will destroy us from within. They will destroy us. You say, well, you know, I'm just not so sure. That's not politically correct. I'm not, I'm not sure we should be that harsh with them. I just want to remind you that when we say that a man is teaching false doctrine, we often think that's isolated or local in its effect. In other words, it only affects these certain areas that he's skewed or wrong in. But I want to charge that if he's wrong there, he's probably wrong throughout as a false teacher. And the end of his work will be destruction, not just of the church as a whole, but hear this, it will be the destruction of the family. We're going to get to it in just a moment, but in introducing this message, I want to perk your ears up. This isn't just church talk. If you sit under false teachers' leadership, your family is in danger of being destroyed. So this is no playing matter. This is not just we'll get around to it sometime. We shouldn't treat this as if, well, that's just not popular. It's just not easy to do that. You know, that's not politically correct. It may not be politically correct, but it is the biblical mandate from Paul. Get your doctrine right, institute the correct biblical leadership, and then root out false teachers who have crept in among you because they will destroy your families. The first point here in the passage that I want us to look at is that the mouths of the insubordinate men must be silenced. This word insubordinate may be translated rebellious for you in your text. Look what it says. For there are many who are insubordinate. We know that there are many. There's not a few of these. There are many false teachers. In some ways, this indicates in the text there are more false teachers than there are true teachers of the Word of God. And I would say that's even possible in our day, wouldn't you? that there are more people around the country and the world teaching false teachings rather than those who are teaching pure doctrine, sound doctrine. And whole churches, whole communities are being led into destruction. Families are being destroyed because of it. There are many, he says, who are insubordinate. They're rebellious. There There are many false teachers, it tells us in verse 10, and then he tells us there are clear... Character flaws with these false teachers. Clear character flaws. In other words, you're not going to have to go beating around in his life to find them. They're glaring. They're clear. They're unquestionable. And what kind of flaws are they? Well, I've listed them for you as they fall in the text. Rebellious. This false teacher is rebellious. And compare that with the attitude of a true elder up in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believing, uh, and he's not charged. They're not charged with debauchery or insubordination. Verse seven: For an overseer must be above reproach; he must not be arrogant, quick-tempered. You see that? Those are characteristics of men that are rebellious, arrogant. So a true elder cannot be arrogant. A true elder cannot be quick-tempered. False teachers are rebellious. They're rebellious. And so we see it here in the text. 
That, that's one character flaw these men have. They're insubordinate. The word meaning they will not submit to authority. When you challenge a false teacher, which Paul tells us to do, they will kick back. They will not go down quietly. They will raise up in a vitriolic manner to defeat you and to, and to expose you as some mean-spirited, narrow-minded Bible thumper. That's generally the way they approach it. And so, Paul, look at the text. Isn't this beautiful the way he lays this out? Get your doctrine right, Titus. And then implement these godly men in contrast to these false teachers who are already in the church. And what I want you to do to them is shut their mouths because they're going to destroy the church and the families of the church. In the text, beautiful. They're rebellious. That's one character trait. They're empty talkers. They base their teachings not on the Scripture, but they base their teachings on their warped interpretation of the Scriptures, their opinions. They're not teaching, as verse 9 says, sound doctrine. They're teaching the doctrine of men. They're teaching their opinion. And the church is so prone to fall in this area. We look at the Cretan church. Obviously, they were guilty of it. Are we guilty of it? How many churches do you know? I'm not asking for specific names. But think in your mind. The, the, the attitude of the church today, what do, what do we do? Are we worried about sound doctrine or are we worried about what people want to hear? Are we studying God's Word or are we running opinion polls as to how we ought to structure our churches? Basing our teachings not on the doctrine of sound doctrine of the Scripture, but basing our teachings rather on the opinions of men which are warped and tangled and will lead to destruction. That's what our church has. If we characterize the United States Evangelical Church today at large, there would be a large percentage of that church which is following in this trap of false teachers. They're following right behind them. They base their whole teaching, their whole lives on opinion polls. So far as to go and destroy the teaching of sin and the teaching of repentance and the teaching of an eternal hell. Those things are absent in so many churches. Matter of fact, some churches brag about that. And they're large churches. They're not small on membership. Thousands go. They feel NBA arenas. And they brag on open air television that they will not, nor have they ever, nor will they ever preach about sin, hell, or repentance. They brag about it. It's a badge of honor for them because it offends. Can I say, false teachers are teaching false doctrine and false gospel. And one way you can identify it is the absence of a need to recognize sin, repent, because hell is at hand. It's not a popular message, but it is a biblical message. And so, these false teachers must be silenced. We must work to differentiate true leaders and elders from false leaders and elders. And one way we do that is by their character flaw of rebellious, empty talk, which is warped minds focused on the doctrine of me and not God.
They're deceivers. <clears throat> they don't hold to the trustworthy word, which Paul writes about for us. In verse 9, look back up there. He must hold, an elder must hold to the trustworthy word as taught. He can't be a deceiver, a liar. You know, one of the guards for the true elder, the true teacher, and the church is that the man stay in the Bible. Stay in the Bible. If you stay in the Bible, you will be guarded against your own opinions, guarded against false teaching, and guarded against deceit if you stay in the text. So many pastors, pastors spend the entire 30 minutes they're allotted telling stories, examples, and trying to connect. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying false teachers, that's what they do. They grab you and pull you in based on their popularity and their communication ability. Where is the man of God who just simply stands and exegetes for you a text of Scripture, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, whether you like it or don't like it, whether it's fancied up and pretty or just kind of rough and out there? I'd much rather sit through an hour of exegetical work out of a text than a 30-minute section or a 20-minute session of vain storytelling fables and myths. I mean, it may not be easy to listen to, and we should work against being hard to listen to, but if our focus turns to prettying the message up and making it acceptable, we're headed down the road of false teaching. Because true teachers hold to the trustworthy word is taught, and their focus is sound doctrine. And then he says, and I'll put this in the character list because I think it is in the character list, circumcision party. These men especially are of the circumcision party. And I want to take just a moment to tell you what that means. These are the Judaizers, those who have become Christians. Remember, we said Titus is working in Crete, and the Cretans got the gospel after the day of Pentecost. People from Crete were at Pentecost. They were saved. They came back. They began to preach the gospel, okay? But there was a heavy Jewish influence in Crete. And so many people in the Cretan church were Judaizers. They simply took the festivals and the ceremonies of the Jewish Old Testament law and covenant and moved it over to the gospel. And the way they did that is to say, you must be saved by faith in Jesus Christ and, and then they had a list of things, and circumcision and keeping the feast and obedience to the law and customs and, and, and washing and clothes and beard length and all that kind of stuff, okay? So they had the gospel in a form, but it was not a true gospel, Paul says in Galatians. It's a false gospel because there's no other gospel except that you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, for God's glory alone. That's the gospel, complete and finished. That's it. Christ's work for us, not our work for Christ saves us, okay? So the false teachers, I'm saying it's a character fall because they believe their works are good enough to save. They would dare. I mean, how bad is your character when you would dare to elevate your personal goodness to Christ's work? That's a serious character flaw. Some might call that blindness, ignorance. It really is, isn't it? But this is works righteousness, and it is alive and well today in our churches. Alive and well. Uh, it's not dead. Though they're not of the circumcision party, we might say they're the ones who emphasize things as salvation or gospel, which are not gospel. Mark Dever in Together for the Gospel 
two weeks ago now, made the point in his message that we should not destroy the gospel by adding to it secondary issues. We got to guard the gospel from being combined with secondary issues. And what? let me tell you what he meant by that. Anytime a man tells you the way to salvation is Christ and anything, that man is a false teacher. He's teaching a false gospel. And he needs to be silenced quickly. So, are we not to do good works? Sure. That's the outcome of your salvation. In other words, we separate it by this simple statement. Not saying you're saved by believing in Jesus and doing good things, but saying you're saved by faith in Christ alone. And the result of that is a desire to good works. Do you hear the difference? The simple insertion of the result of salvation is this. Now it's clear to everyone I'm not saved by my works. A simple insertion after a challenge to, uh, to help the, uh, the underprivileged, to, to, uh, to reach out to um, the orphan, to feed the hungry, to a simple insertion of the this is the result of your salvation fixes the problem. But the circumcision party wouldn't do that. They wouldn't say you're saved by faith in Christ alone. Now, the result of that for us Jews may look different than it does for you as a Gentile. And then they talk about their own nuances. They would be in good keeping with the gospel and not rebuked by Paul. But they weren't teaching that way. They were combining the law and the gospel in an unjust, untruthful way. And these people are all in our churches. You must be baptized to be saved. You must, be, uh, you must be filled with the Spirit and speak in tongues to be saved. You must be, uh, you, you insert, you must do good works. You must live, uh, live um, simple lives. I've heard that one used. You have to live a simple life to be a Christian. You have to homeschool your children. I've heard that one a lot lately from people in the world, in the church. That is a false gospel. That will destroy your family. It will destroy your family. Anything added to Christ will destroy your faith and destroy your family. Now, is homeschooling a good thing? Sure it is. Sure it is. Is living simply a good thing? Absolutely. Is giving away your possessions a good thing? Sure, but if you say that's what's saving you, then you've lost your faith and you're headed for destruction. You might call it works righteousness. You might call it legalism. Either way, it's the same sin and it destroys. It doesn't build up. The effect is always the destruction of family. By teaching these things for shameful gain, whole families... Whole families are being upset, he says. False teachers often work in small groups. A false teacher rarely begins his work by standing up in front of a hundred people and teaching. He wants to get you and your wife and your children by themselves so he can teach you. He wants to influence you in a small group first. 
Because if he stood up in an assembly like this, surely there'd be at least one Christian who would stand up and say, that's not true. But if he can get you by himself, he can intimidate you. And he can pack you in the corner. And he can prey on your insufficient knowledge. And he can make you believe, twist the truth to make you believe it. False teachers often work in small groups. False teachers often involve themselves in sexual sin. I want you to look at an alarming text. You say, well, I'm just not sure this thing's all that important. You know, watching out for false teachers. 2 Timothy 3, look there. It's one page in my Bible. Turn over there. Verse 16. Excuse me, 1 Timothy. It's a few more pages back. Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of God in us. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now look back at 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. And he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the false teacher leaves that firm foundation and heads towards an involvement in sexual sin. Matter of fact, in Timothy, Timothy's warned by Paul that many false teachers go into the homes and take advantage of weak-minded women who are carried away in the lust of the flesh. A strict warning about false teachers and their sexual sins. False teachers twist the word. They twist the word. They don't often come to you with bold-faced lies. They come to you with nuances of the truth, partial truths and added to truths. Paul says we've got to watch out for these false teachers who are destroying our families at their very fabric. I've seen families destroyed by false teaching. I've seen wives leave husbands because their husband's requirements were much stricter than the word of God for her life. I've seen false teachers come into homes and lead in such a way that that wife then is in, a, in, a, in an intimate affair with him in a short time. I've seen these families destroyed. Paul had seen these families destroyed and he warns against it very strongly. How strongly? Shut their mouths. Silence them. Have right doctrine, find right leaders, and rightly defend the church against these false teachers, Paul would say. Their motive is sordid gain. Look in verse 11, the second part. Their motive is sordid gain, shameful gain, sordid gain, filthy lucre. What does this mean? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul gives us a, a warning through his writing to Timothy. He says that a false teacher is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. There's his motivation. He wants gain. He wants to be rich. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of this world. So there is a gain in godliness, but it's not monetary gain necessarily. It's godliness that we gain. The Cretans were generally known as vile people. 
Paul deals with that here in verse 12. One of your Cretan prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this is true. I mean, how would you like that in Holy Script? Written down for all the world to see. Not only did one of your own people say this, but he wasn't mistaken, it's true. I mean, that's a rebuke, right? Ancient, there was an ancient saying that dated back into the, the, the uh, 600 B.C. era where people began to say that a person cretinized when they told lies. The, whole, the Eastern world began to refer to liars as cretins. It was almost a subtle joke in their, in their congregations, in their gatherings. He calls them not only liars, but he calls them evil beasts. You see that there? Evil beasts. This is obvious, uh, 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 obviously a flaw of, of being sexually driven, animalistic almost. Driven by the base desires. That's what these people are. They're driven by the base desires of sex and food. He calls them evil beasts, lazy gluttons. The basic desires of a man, they have perverted them and begin to seek those instead of the kingdom of God. And so they worship their bellies, their gluttons. They're looking for the party. I believe, I mean, when, I've, when I'm visualizing these Cretans that Titus is supposed to be whipping into shape, I see these fat, uh, huffing and puffing men who are always looking for the next place to pour some strong drink and drink a bit, eat a big feast and get into some type of uh, sexual sin. Philanderers, liars, thieves, that's who I see. That's his congregation. Talk about discouraging. You show up to church every week with a bunch of people that weigh three or 400 pounds. Lazy. None of them want to work, so they're stealing other people's stuff. And they're hunting the next sexual sin they can get into. And, and now Paul, remember, said, Titus, get your doctrine right, and then do what? Make some elders. Find them. They're there. Find them. Can you imagine the first Sunday morning he got up in front of his congregation and he thought, oh boy, we got a long way to go. And when you find those godly leaders, Titus, get busy about shutting the mouths of those who teach false doctrine. Take that lazy, lying, glutton, sexually perverted man, saved by the grace of God, transformed into the image of Christ, or being transformed into the image of Christ, and take him back to his old compadres and shut their mouths. That's what he says in the first chapter of this book. So you're sitting here saying, how does this apply to me? You may be a lazy glutton at this moment. And yet God's grace can save you and transform you in such a way that in some short time you would be an elder, a leader in the church, shutting the mouths of your old friends who teach false doctrine. That's how good God is. That's how good God is. He can take anyone, even a Cretan, and make an elder. Paul said that this statement made 600 years earlier and the testimony of one of their prophets is absolutely true. And I can't help but see Paul with a little tongue-in-cheek joke going here. Okay, he's poking fun at them a little. He's bringing their, um, their, their sin in front of their eyes in a way that they couldn't deny it. 
So insubordinate. The mouths of insubordinate men must be silenced. What do we see next? The mouths of insubordinate men must be silenced by godly reproof. Godly rebuke. You don't go with your opinion to shut the mouth of a man who bases his world and his teachings on opinion. You go to him with the word of God. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Rebuke them sharply. The Greek there is cut them in two. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says the word of God is a two-edged sword sharp enough to cut all the way to the division of a man's soul. So what are we to go to them with, to cut them with? Not with our opinions, but with the Word of God. So you have right doctrine, godly elders who are going and shutting the mouths of these ungodly teachers. How? Not by their opinions, not by their mere authority, not by their mere presence, but by the Word of God. They're taking these men to the Word of God and they're saying, where do you find what you're teaching in the text? And when it's not there, they then correct them. So it's the Word of God that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke is not for destruction. He's not kicked them out. This is what he's saying. Rebuke them sharply. Cut them up with the Word of God so that they might be sound in their faith. Titus. There's hope in the Gospel. In other words, if you're a lazy, lying, glutton, perverted man who's made into an elder, your buddy who you're going to talk to about shutting his mouth because he's teaching falsely may become an elder in the future. If you will just do what the Word of God says. How many false teachers go through their entire lives unrebuked? And if someone would have done what Paul said, go to them and shut their mouths with the Word of God, they would have repented, had true faith, been saved, and then their lives would be an example of God's grace and glory. What does the church do today? Well, it's not politically correct. We might hurt their feelings. It's not our job or our role. It'll cause contention and strife. No. Letting them continue to teach false doctrine will cause contention to strife and destroy the homes of your church, Paul says. Go to them and shut their mouths. Not with your opinion, with the Word of God. So that they will repent and be faithful. Rebuke and correction in the church. Discipline is not some uh, heavy-handed, hateful, unmerciful process. It's a process of love. You're going to these men with the Word and saying, please, stop teaching unsound things. Teach the Word of God. Here is what God says on what you're doing. And let's teach this. It's a stern rebuke that we're to give them. We're to approach them with a a spirit of humility, love, kindness, and patience. And patience. 2 Timothy 2, 24-25, Paul says... And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And look what he says. God may perhaps grant repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The point here is not to bash these false teachers to ridicule them, to run them down. The point is to go to them in love and patiently call them to believe the truth. Now, it may come to the point where you have to say, you're disqualified. You're not above reproach. You're involved in sexual sin. You're a drunk. You're not willing to work. You're lazy. Whatever. You're not managing your household well. You're disqualified for now. But you don't disqualify them and remove them from fellowship. You've 
begged them and pleaded with them to repent. And God will grant repentance to some and they will be saved. That's what the church is about. If not programs, what are we going to do? Get your doctrine right, put leadership in place, and then go and shut the mouths of those who would teach false doctrine. Turn them from myths to the truth. The commandment of men. That, that's what the myths are. They're the commandments of men. And Jesus addressed that issue. Look in Mark. Hold your place here and look in Mark. Chapter 7. Dave and I were talking about this text earlier this week. And it's exactly the point of what Paul is talking about here in Titus. Jesus faced these myths of the Jews also. And look how he handled it. In Mark chapter 7 verses 5 through 9. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the, what? Tradition of the elders, the doctrines of men, but eat with defiled hands? Listen to this. And Jesus said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's what these Judaizers were doing. They were teaching circumcision, festivals, diets, the clothes we wear as doctrines of God. Those are doctrines of men, Jesus says. And look what he says. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. False teachers will leave God's Word and always hold to their opinions. It's another identifier for a false teacher. When you take him this rebuking word and show him the Bible, if he's a false teacher, he may be an erring brother, and you take it to him and he repents humbly, he's restored, what a testimony of God's grace. But you may take him the word, hold it up in front of him, and he may shun it. He may turn his face from it and say, I'll hold to what I believe, you hold to what you believe. Now we're dealing with a false teacher, not a man teaching in error or ignorance. Apollos was in ignorance of Christ When he was corrected, he quickly learned and began to teach the true gospel. But others, Hermeneus and others, Alexander, were not true teachers, and they shunned the word. And so Paul said, turn them over to Satan, that their souls might possibly be saved. What a strong teacher teaching here. And so Jesus says, do not bring the teachings of men up to the value of the Scripture. Hold to the Scripture Paul says, Titus, teach them to hold the true doctrine as true leaders and go and shut the mouths of those who are false. Who are false. Look what it says there, though, in description as we close. It says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. You see that turn away from the truth? The sad truth is, the sad thing is, that people will heap to themselves teachers that will teach them what they want to hear and what their tickling ears desire, and they will turn away from the truth of the Scripture. And it's evident in Paul's day and in our day, people follow in the, in the stream of popularity and good, sound, you know, worldly advice, not the doctrine of God. He says they turn away. That is a sad statement about the Cretan church. May it never be said of Grace Fellowship, that we turned away from the truth and began to follow the myths of mere men. But it can happen. It can happen. How? You get so involved in doing church 
and running programs may be good things on their own that you don't watch your doctrine, that you don't have godly leadership leading you, and these false teachers destroy from within. The focus of this series is not other churches. The focus of this series is grace fellowship. If we turn away from the right doctrine of God, we will, we will turn away from the truth and be destroyed. So what I'm calling you to do as individuals and as a church is have sound doctrine, godly leaders, and shut the mouths of anyone who would teach wrongly with this word, not your opinion. Hoping that God will grant repentance and they will be saved. Let's pray. Father, this is your word given to us. It is right. It is true. And may anything that was said inappropriately or false about it pass away. Even right now in the minds of these people. If I've spoken wrongly in any point, God, you know it. So just take it from their minds. Only allow your truth to stand. Not the mere traditions of men. And God, we in this church are in danger of turning from the truth. We are in danger because we can get relaxed and we can get focused on other things besides our doctrine, our leadership, and shutting the mouths of those who would teach false doctrine. So help us, help us to rightly divide your word and understand this scripture. It's in your name we pray. Amen.